Hey, good morning. My name's Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church. Our senior pastor, Dave, is visiting family up in Memphis for a few days, so we wish him well up there. Um, we're going to spend some time in God's Word now because we believe that, that this book tells us all about Jesus. It speaks with the authority of Jesus, and we want to know Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we look at this. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters, and it's been a series called True Unity, because the Corinthian church, like any church, had people who had differing opinions and the way they should do things and differing skills and personality, and so there was conflict going on and quarrels and things. And so the first four chapters of Corinthians is all about how to deal with those divisions. This week, we're going to look at the last part of this series. We'll just look at this last sermon, and then we're going to move on to something else next week when Dave comes back. We'll be in chapter 4 of Corinthians, and we're going to call it this week, Humility Ends Division. It's an appropriate passage for us today, uh, and that's because a couple things going on in our nation. Uh, there's lots of struggles and division and conflict going on, and those things bleed over into the church. We want to be people who are not divided within the church so that we can help other people know what it means to be together following Jesus. And so that's some of the things we'll talk about. We're going to look at it in three different aspects today. Uh, The first of those is that humility accepts God's gifts. You know, everything that we have or ever will have comes from God. He's the one who gave it to us. He's the one who takes care of us. And that that cancels any pride or superiority that we can have over other people because we're all on even footing. God is giving to all of us. The second thing we're going to talk about is that humility accepts or imitates Jesus' followers. Uh, We need to learn. All of us have to learn how to follow Jesus. We do that through following other people lots of times and seeing how they follow Jesus. The third way we're going to look at humility is that it loves others. God has been loving us, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not. He has been giving us his love. Uh, We don't love to get God's approval. We already have God's approval for trusting in him, and that enables us to love other people the way Jesus loved us when he sacrificed his own life. So let's read this passage together. We'll be in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read. I'm actually going to read from verse 6 through the end of the chapter. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. 
When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. God, you are our good Father. You are the one who created us. You are the one who reigns over us, who loves us and cares for us. Help us to see today where we are being prideful, where we are looking at other people with an air of superiority, where we are boasting in ourselves instead of boasting in what you have done. Uh, God, help us to ignore distractions, to ignore those things that would keep us from understanding. Thank you for your grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was in an aviation career from my time in the military, and because of that, I had to know a bunch about weather, because when you're flying, sometimes weather can be a real problem. And so we had to learn how they get the weather. And I don't know if you knew this, but in our world, every day, there's hundreds of weather balloons being released up into the atmosphere to figure out what the weather's doing and what's happening up there. These weather balloons are, they're pretty big. I mean, you know, when you see the picture there, you see it's, it's as tall as a man at least. So they release this thing up into the atmosphere. It has a device on the bottom that broadcasts all this information back to the weather guys about wind speed and temperatures and all these things. But then you have to wonder, what happens to those balloons? If there's hundreds every day, where do they go? Well, the truth is, because gases expand as you get higher in the atmosphere, the farther up that balloon goes, the more it expands. And eventually, at around 100,000 feet in elevation, it explodes. And the remnants of that fall to the ground. And that's kind of picture of what our pride is like when it works in us. We become overinflated, and eventually, something's going to deflate us. One of the first things we want to look at in, de- in dealing with pride in our lives is that humility accepts God's gifts. We're going to look at the, that in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. The first step towards humility is being thankful for what God has given us. You know, he graciously gives gifts to us. We don't, have, we don't try to earn those gifts or get things from God. He's not a slot machine. That's why we call it grace. Everything we have is given to us. If I have an attitude of superiority to other people, it's really because I'm comparing myself with other people. And I'm thinking that in some way, 
I'm superior to them. Dave addressed some of that in the passage last week when he showed us that they were departing from the truth of Scripture. They weren't paying attention to what God had showed them through Paul's life and through his teaching. They had an inflated view of themselves. They were puffed up. And that leads to comparisons. That's how we support ourselves when we're prideful. And that leads to conflict because people are comparing themselves to other people. They don't get along. And we know that was a problem in Corinth because they had these factions and quarrels going on and they were self-deceived, as Paul calls it. But the problem is, is that we're no different than Corinth. Pride is a universal human problem. We all have it. And if we say we don't have it, we're actually proving that we do have it. C.S. Lewis says this about it, mere Christianity. Pride is essentially competitive by its very nature. While other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Pride says, what I am, what I have, I made all that. I did all that. It's because I'm such a good person that I have those things. Pride ignores the reality of what is said in Scripture about who we are, where we came from, and what we have. Paul asked three questions of these folks. First one is, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? Fact is, there's nothing in our lives that we haven't received from God. It's all come from him. He made us the unique, special, quirky people that we are. He supplies all we need. He gave us our unique talents and gifts. The comparison that some of us have and that we see in Corinth of in favor against one or another denies that everything is from God. What it says is, I made me. You know, it's interesting because they saw their giftedness as even superior to Paul and the apostles. Because Paul came to them in weakness and fear and trembling, and he elected not to use eloquent speech, but just to preach Jesus to them, they looked down on Paul and thought, we're doing even better than you because we have all these gifts that God gave us. And because we are gifted, we are better. And we also have eloquence in our oration. You know, when we participate in those pride competitions, uh, we are essentially saying we don't need God. We're just causing division among ourselves. And the truth of the matter is we're dividing ourselves from God. We're causing a problem in our relationship with him. We're telling God we don't need you to get where we are. And we are so good that we can make it on our own. And we deserve your acceptance and blessing because we are so good. Here's what Keller says there. There's really superiority, right? And people have inferiority. That's two different ways we think about it in our world today. And in his book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he talks about both of those. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They're both the results of being overinflated. The person with superiority conflicts is overinflated and in danger of being deflated. The person with the inferiority complex is deflated already. Someone with an inferiority complex will tell you they hate themselves. And they will tell themselves that they hate themselves. 
they are deflated. To be deflated means you were previously inflated. Deflated or in imminent danger of being deflated, it's all the same thing. It makes your ego very fragile. Think of that balloon as it gets up to 100,000 feet, right? It gets very fragile to the point where it just falls apart. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, said about this. He said, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Accepting God's gifts means we recognize our need. We know that we're not enough when we say thank you to God for his gifts. We're incapable of making ourselves enough. We're incapable of working for God's acceptance. We can't gain it by our righteous good works. When we trust in God, then we already have his acceptance. We don't have to prove something to him. And what's happened through that, if we've trusted in God, is he's adopted us into a family where we can live a life of thankfulness and recognize that everything coming from him is a blessing. It's a trust issue. And as believers, we're supposed to be trusting God, not ourselves. We're trusting a loving Father who delights in us, who loves us every day, even on our worst days. We have to remember that that's our new identity, right? He loves us as much as he loves Jesus. He sees us like he sees Jesus. And because of that new identity, we can live in a different way. We can recognize that God's gifts can be received because we are being humble. We're humbling ourselves under God. When we trust God with who we are, when we trust other people with who we are, God's grace flows through us. That's just the way he's built us. It's the way it's supposed to work. So what are some some ways we can do that? Well, I would say one of the first steps we can take is to sit down someplace and admit, okay, I've got a pride problem. We just have to say it. I mean, we know we do. There are things that we do that we say, wow, I did a great job with that because I'm such a great guy. Uh, when in fact, the only reason I can do a great job with that is because God enabled me to do that. So sit down, just kind of go through the accomplishments you've had in your life, in school, in family, whatever they are, and think about, how did God work that out? How did he do that? Because we know already that we can't take pride in saying, I did all that. It's okay to take pleasure in someone saying, wow, you did a great job for that. That is not the same as saying, I am so wonderful that I made that happen. Those are two different things. That's when we cross the line. One very specific thing I think we can do in our church is just thank God for the diversity within our church. Thank him that we can encourage people who are hurting, who are grieving, uh, that we can be a part of reconciliation within our communities because we have a diverse network of people around us. Uh, there's another way, too. This is like step three. Now, there's a book by Ann Voskamp called A Thousand Gifts, and a really awesome book that is really all about thankfulness to God. And here's one of the things she says in there. She's doing laundry. Uh, that's the context for doing this. And there it is, bent over the laundry. That humility isn't a burden or humiliation or oppressive weight, 
But humility is the only posture that can receive the wondrous grace gifts of God. I'll read that again. But humility is the only posture that can receive the wondrous grace gifts of God. Take time to reflect upon what you've been given. Take time to thank God for it. It's really helpful to make lists. It's helpful to sit down and just start writing down, what did God do in my life today? What did I receive from God today? What did I see in nature and in his creativity and his love for me? And just make it a part of your your routine every day to be thankful. Second way that humility ends division is humility imitates Christ followers. That's verses 9 through 17. You know, it's a mark of humility that we can learn from other people. We want to learn how to follow Christ. Uh, You know, Paul, first of all, contrasts the Corinthians' perceived superiority uh, with how he is living. Uh, The Corinthians had a culture much like ours. It was all about looking for comfort and success and what can I accomplish? What can I do to be productive in this society? Uh, The wisdom of the culture in Corinth was that eloquence in speaking is the greatest good because that's what the Greeks were doing at the time. And they themselves really didn't do a lot of labor. They had more slaves in Corinth than they did citizens. And so doing manual labor, that was below them. And Paul's using satire to show them that that wisdom isn't how it works in the kingdom of God. He lays out a list that the apostles were suffering. He says they were hungry, they were thirsty, they were poorly clothed, brutally treated, no safe place to live, They labored with their own hands, and that was so they wouldn't be a burden to others. They were verbally abused, and they responded with a blessing to those abusing him. They endured persecution. When when somebody lied about them, they humbly made an appeal. In the end, he says, they seem like the stuff that soldiers scrape off their boots after two weeks in the field. That's essentially what he was saying. So who do you think those apostles might have been imitating? This is kind of that Sunday school question that's always the same answer, right? It's Jesus, right? The apostles had seen Jesus. They'd seen him follow God and humble himself before God. And so they were able to follow Jesus and follow his example. They became people who trusted God because they saw in Jesus' life how he trusted God. You know, they knew with absolute certainty that God had initiated his plan for the future with the resurrection of Jesus. And because they knew that, they knew that their present life was nothing in comparison to what was coming. Here's what Paul says about that in 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now we're going to skip the next couple of verses and we'll come back to those, but look. With me at verse 16, here's what Paul says. Seems like this would be rather arrogant. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. At first, that would seem like, wow, we should follow Paul. I mean, think of all the things he did. Um, But I think here's why you can follow Paul. Because Paul became someone who relentlessly, single-mindedly followed Jesus, trusted Jesus in everything, and he passed it on to other people. In other places, he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am in Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In 1 Thessalonians, And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you might become an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, whether we realize it or not, we're all imitating somebody, right? When you were in, in school, if you're in school now, you imitate the cool kids because you want to be accepted as cool. We imitate our parents when we're growing up. Take any son and his dad and follow them down the street and you will see resemblances in the way they walk and the way they act. Some of those aren't good. I don't want to admit the ones I have. Uh, Yeah. We, We follow other people. We imitate them because we need to learn. And so if we're going to learn in our spiritual life, we should be looking for people that we can imitate who are following Jesus. Timothy is Paul's example of that person. Paul regards Timothy as a child that he has raised up. Timothy submitted himself to Paul and to God and followed Paul wherever he went for quite a long time. And so when he sends Timothy to the Corinthians, he says he will remind you. He's not just talking about Timothy talking. He's talking about the way Timothy relates to people, the way Timothy teaches them, the way he talks to God. He's talking about Timothy as a physical reminder of what Paul was like and how he followed Jesus. Have you ever had the gift of someone that you could see was following Christ that you could imitate? One of the first guys that that came into my life in that regard was a guy named Joe Gummel. Uh, I was in a fighter squadron where any of you have been in that situation where you're in the military with a bunch of guys who are doing what they want to do. Joe stood out as a guy who was following Jesus. It's really interesting because we would have Joe over to our house and he would have dinner with us. And a couple days later, we'd get a thank you note in the mail. I was just amazed that a guy would care enough, be thankful enough to write a thank you note just for a simple meal that he came to at somebody's house. And so, you know, I was watching Joe he, would, uh, he knew the spiritual condition of everybody in the squadron. And when he'd catch him talking to people, often he was talking about spiritual things. He was relating to them the goodness of God. He was showing all the leaders there honor and respect. And some of those things weren't going on in my life at the time. And by watching Joe, it became apparent to me that I knew a lot about Jesus, but I didn't really know Jesus. I didn't have the relationship with him that I should have. And so by following Joe, who was following Jesus, it led me into a relationship with Jesus instead of a guy with a bunch of head knowledge with Jesus. And then years later, I met this other guy 
His name's Walter Parsons. Walter is uh, Walter is the big guy in the middle there. That's his nephew on the right and his brother Robert on the left. We lived near this guy in Brandywine, Maryland, and we would drive by his house from time to time. And he had a bunch of Volvos in the driveway and in the front yard, <laughs> which the city didn't like. But anyway, he was repairing Volvos. And at the same time, I had begun doing the same thing. I was buying wrecked Volvos and rebuilding them and reselling them. And we kept saying, I ought to meet that guy because he's doing the same thing I'm doing. Well, finally, I got up the nerve to go and introduce myself to him. And so I went down the driveway to meet Mr. Parson. And what I discovered within the first couple minutes is you didn't leave that guy's house without hearing about Jesus. Uh, He was an amazing guy. And so for several years, uh, I got to interact with him. And he became a guy that I said, wow, this guy is worth imitating. He would do things like, he'd light up a welding torch to do some brazing, as we call it. And, and as soon as he lit it up, he'd say, well, every time I light that thing up, I think how hot the fires of hell are going to be. Or, or he'd nick his hand and there'd be a little bit of blood trickling on it. Say something like, you know, nothing is sanctified except by the shedding of blood. Everywhere we went, when I went with him, if somebody was broken down on the road, or if you were at an auction trying to buy cars, he would end up talking to people about Jesus. Interesting thing is, uh, I think all the cars he fixed, I don't know that he ever sold one. I think he gave them away. Uh, sometimes I'd go over there early in the morning, and uh, I was coming over to do something because he had all the really good equipment in his garage that I didn't have. And I'd get there early in the morning, and there we would be in his garage, sitting next to the wood stove, reading his Bible and praying. Uh, just just a godly man uh, who's dearly missed now, uh, but he was always telling people about Jesus, always sharing the goodness of God with him uh, because he trusted God. So I guess if we're going to apply this to our lives, one way I would say to do it is ask God to show you somebody in your life, someone near you, someone that you may have some association with, that is following Jesus, that is worth following, imitating. Another way to do this, uh, if you can't find those people, is read the gospel accounts of Jesus and see how he served people of different tribes, races, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the Greeks. Just look at how he worked with all those different people and how he met their needs. Or you can read the book of Acts and look at the apostles and do the same thing. How did they act like Jesus as they were dealing with people? Third way that humility ends division is humility loves other people. Uh, This is, we're going to back up a little bit to verse 14 and and look at that some more. But just as a, a big overview 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Humility, thanking God and learning to follow Jesus by imitating others enables us to love others. Let's go back to verse 14 so we can see where this is coming from. 
So Paul's been dealing with the pride issue for the last three and a half chapters. That's what he's been doing. Now he's changing his mode. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's changing his tone. He's not acting as the authoritative apostle anymore. Now he's changing to, I'm your spiritual father. I care about you. You are my beloved children. I want to help you get back on the right track. You know, when we shame people, we actually end up causing them to withdraw from us. I'm sure you've been through that before. When you feel ashamed, you kind of want to shrink back into a corner so nobody can see you. And that's not Paul's desire for these folks. He wants to correct them. He wants to help them get to where they need to be. He wants to build them up. We, we as fathers, all of us who are fathers and mothers, we know that our goal is to help our children grow up to maturity. We don't want them to still be children needing us to make every decision for them when they get to be 18 years old. The whole growth process is about helping them make decisions, giving them more and more freedom, letting them see what they need to be, and advising them, giving them wisdom and security. Paul mentions this thing called guardians in this passage. He says, although you have thousands of guardians, countless guides, you only have one father. Now in the uh, Corinthian system, uh, in the Greek system, they had these things called guides. These people were essentially slaves, hired help to take their kids to school and from school and to make sure they stayed out of trouble and to make sure they obeyed the house rules. They weren't like their fathers. They weren't supposed to be passing on the wisdom, security, and nurturing that a father can. And so that's why Paul is using that as a comparison here. Uh, he's loving his spiritual children. It's in humility that he's res- reminding them that he was their father through the gospel. It wasn't because he was such a great guy that he just changed their lives. It's because Jesus changed their lives because trust- they trusted in him. So how do we see humility working in Paul in this? Well, he had the authority to discipline as an apostle. God had given him that authority. But he imitated Jesus, who has ultimate authority over everybody. And by imitating Jesus, Paul is trusting that he can serve these people, that he can help these people, that he can love these people and help them see what's going on in their lives, and help them change it. He wasn't going to give up on the Corinthians because Jesus didn't give up on him. It also enabled him to tell them, uh, you're doing wrong things, and those need to be corrected. And he's urging them to change course, to trust the new identity given to them in Christ. You know, it's really interesting because in the middle of this pandemic, we have something that really is helpful is this illustration. It's called the protective mask. Uh, when we wear those protective masks, uh, they serve a function, don't they? That's why we call them protective masks. They're supposed to keep the virus out and keep us from putting the virus out. Uh, have you noticed how much harder it is to read someone's emotions when they're wearing a mask when you can only see half their face? <laughs> Especially with my old ears, Uh, when I am trying to understand what somebody is saying with a mask on, communication becomes more difficult. 
And so I assume that when I'm wearing a mask and I'm trying to talk to somebody else, my communication is also garbled. The inflection of my voice is garbled. It's just harder. You can't, you can't communicate through the mask. See, pride becomes a metaphorical mask that we wear. It becomes something that stops communication, that stops us from loving people, and stops us from receiving love. When we're not trusting God, we're by default trusting ourselves, right? Our self-trust leads us to pride. And pride is an indication that we don't trust God or other people with us. Recently, I was listening to a podcast, and this question came up. uh, Really interesting question, because I hadn't thought about it before. But here's the question. Is humility something we develop on our own strength? That is, is it a behavior that I can practice? Here's what Tim Keller says about that. Humility is so shy. If I focus on humility, I look inward to assess if I'm sufficiently humble. And in the very act, humility darts. And I'm proud, self-focused, doesn't work. So no, the answer is no. Humility is not a behavior that we put on that we can practice to get better at humility. It's like, think about it, any time you are getting rid of a bad habit, for example, you practice and you keep repeating that practice and essentially you may get better at not doing that habit. But you know that if you don't keep on doing it for a lifetime in the same way, you will eventually fail. And what also happens when we do that is we get proud of how good we've become at not doing whatever it is we're trying to not do. Uh, Unfortunately, humility is one of the things that as soon as you say, see how good I am at doing this now? It's over. You're back to pride. So let's take a look at Jesus' life and say, okay, how did Jesus do this? This is from the, uh, the Last Supper, John 13, when Jesus had his last meal with his disciples. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. See, Jesus trusted his Father. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that God had promised that this is what's going to happen. He knew the plan. And in spite of what was before him, he focused on other people instead of himself. You know, washing somebody's feet, in our world, we wear shoes, so we don't worry about that. In Jesus' world, it was the cultural common thing to have a servant wash people's feet when they came to dinner because they just walked in off the dirty streets. But nobody, none of his disciples thought to do it or stooped to do it. So Jesus gave them an example of what it is to love other people and to trust that God will take care of you and your loving of other people. Peter says this in 
1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The humble trust God with who they are. Humbling ourselves under God, you know, that seems sometimes to be like, oh, what does that mean? Well, it's just admitting that I can't take care of me. I, th- I think I can when I'm proud. I think that I'm doing it when I'm not trusting that there is a God who is reigning over all of us. Humbling ourselves under God is the prerequisite for enabling us to clothe ourselves with humility towards other people. That's how we get there. That's why it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Because that's how we get to be at a point where we can love other people. Nothing we can do behaviorally, nothing we can alter in who we are and what we do is going to gain acceptance for us with God. It all comes in trust because then he enables us to become the people he wants us to be. He gives grace to those who trust him. It's our relationship with God. It's our believing that he is good and knowing that he's good and knowing him that enables us to trust and love other people. You know, that, that metaphorical mask, uh, is, it's a byproduct of our pride and our self-deception. When I rely on me to take care of me, I have no trust in others. I'm afraid that if you really saw me, if you really knew the things that I thought in my head, the things you don't see when you're not with me, that you would say, well, I'm not sure I ever want to be around that guy. Uh, And I think a lot of us feel that way if we're honest with ourselves. But God is the one that I can trust myself with. He made me. He knows my person. He knows my sin. He knows my brokenness. And yet, He loves me. He gave me a new, new identity in Christ. I'm no longer who I used to be. I don't need to protect me anymore. God's going to take care of that. You know, if I can accept how God uniquely created me, if we can do that, then we can function the way God made us to function with our unique personalities instead of trying to gain acceptance through the wearing of a mask. I can trust others with who I am. I started to say, that the protective mask that you're wearing, some of you are wearing right now, is not like the the pride mask, but it really is. And, And here's why. That protective mask keeps us from pushing the virus out, and it keeps the virus from coming in. The metaphorical mask of pride keeps us from loving others, and it doesn't allow love to get to us. Only my fake me is getting love when I'm wearing that protective mask called pride. I had said this verse before, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We can't build other people up if we're self-inflated, if we're in pride. Humble people trust God in themselves. They trust God and they trust themselves to other people. Even in Paul's admonishment, the fact that he's saying, how do you want me to come back? 
Do you want me to come back with a rod of discipline or in the gentleness of love? Even in that, he is loving the Corinthians because he's trying to bring them back to a right path. So how can we get to be that person? Well, what would it be like, especially right now in our country, if instead of defending your views on the pandemic or the current state of our nation and why it's happening and what's happening, how would it be to sit down with someone who has differing views from you and to say, how is this affecting you? So it's a real different question because most of the time we are so caught up in saying, well, yeah, I think this and I think that. But the question of how is this affecting you allows a conversation to start that is probably a much more helpful conversation for us to learn about people and to love people. Or you could ask God to show you someone who needs your focus. Just pray, ask God, hey, God, who can I help at this moment? Who can I serve? Give them a phone call. Ask them how you can pray for them. Uh, in conclusion, uh, you may have been asking through this whole thing, well, how does humility end division? Well, here's how it does that. Humility accepts God's gifts. Because it does, because it knows that that sacrifice by Jesus on the cross is what brought us into relationship with God. We're part of a family. We're all together in this. Because we're part of a family, we are no longer in competition with each other. By not being in competition with each other, we don't have division. Secondly, humility moves us to imitate others following Jesus. We're all unified by a desire to reach the same goal. We all want to be like Jesus. Because we're all headed towards the same goal, we're not competing. We're doing the same thing together. And finally, because humility enables us to love other people, we can nurture them, we can encourage them, we can admonish them to build them up in Christ. We're not competing with them. We're running alongside them in a race. That's how humility ends division. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you that you are the one through Jesus who showed us what true humility is. God, we ask that you would work in our lives. Help us to admit the pride that we exercise sometime every day. God, heal us. Help us to help others heal. Help us to be a light that, that shows the glory and the goodness of your mercy, your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.